The second reading tonight is from Exodus chapter 19 and verses 1 to 6. In the Pew Bible, it's about page 78. And it's, uh, the section is titled At Mount Sinai. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Shirley. I'll get ready and I'll call you back in a moment, but grab an outline. You'll need one for tonight. There's a little quiz there. Uh, Grab an outline, turn around, mingle, and I'll call you back soon. Uh, But let me pray and we'll have a look at what we'll be looking at tonight. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that your plans will never fail. And we thank you that your plans were already there right from the beginning and we see its fulfilment in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you might help us see that tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in our series so far, we've been looking at really the the big events of the Bible and they're not just big events of the Bible, they're the big events of human history. So we've looked at three of them, today we're up to the fourth. We're looking at these turning points of human history, points which sort of tell us why we are here, where we've come uh, from and what we're on about, what is this human race on about. And so as a quick summary... If you want to know our origin, if you want to know your origin, if you want to know the origin of this world, this universe, why we are here, what is our purpose in this world, then you go to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. You go to creation. There you find our purpose. You don't go to science textbooks. You see, they don't tell us what our purpose is. You don't go and talk to philosophers They will only tell you what they can think up of in their human minds, but our human minds are limited. To find out our purpose, we go to God, we go to the beginning, we go to creation, we go to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Now, if you want to know why is there so much evil and suffering in this world, why is this world so messed up, so broken, so corrupted, why all this? Well, where do you go? You go to the four. You go to the story of the four in Genesis chapter 3. You don't go and ask an atheist why is there evil and suffering because they don't have an answer for that. In fact, if you're a consistent atheist, evil doesn't exist. And you don't go talk to a a Buddhist or a Hindu because in their pantheistic worldview, evil is just an illusion. If you want want to know why there is evil and suffering in the world, You go to God, you go to the four, you go to see what God tells us and how it went all wrong in Genesis 3. 
And if you want to know what hope there is for humanity, if this is the mess that we're all in, if this is the brokenness and the corruption of this world, it's a terrible mess. What hope is there for humanity? Where do you go find hope? Where do you go looking for hope? Well, you go looking for hope in the promises of God. And that was last week, Genesis 12. You don't go looking for hope in education. Remember how we talked about that. Even if the whole world was educated, everyone in the world had a PhD, you will not get a better world. All you get will be educated sinners. And you don't find hope in human achievement. As our technology advances, as medicine advances, you will not find hope in that. Life might be easier, but the thing is we will still grow old, we will still be wicked and evil and sinful, and we'll ultimately die anyway. Instead, to find hope, we go to the one who made us all, and we go to the one who also made promises to this world. And that was last week, Genesis 12. Now today, we come to the next big turning point, next big event in the Bible, which really is the next big event in human history, and that is the Exodus. Today we come to the Exodus, where God acts to rescue his people. Now this is the story of Moses. You may be familiar with the story of Moses. Perhaps you've seen the movies, Prince of Egypt, for example, movies like that. So today we come to this story, big event. It's an event that defines the nation of Israel. It is the highlight, the pinnacle, the high point of Israel's history. Because in this event, in the Exodus, the people of God got to witness the power of God in salvation, what God did in fulfilling his promise. And in this event, in the Exodus, we see the connection between the promises of God in Genesis 12 and how God will bring them about. So that's today, the Exodus. So how do we get to this point? How do we move from the promises to Abraham, Genesis 12, to the Exodus? Well, that first video was a really excellent summary of, of Genesis 12 to 50. And so as we read Genesis 12 to 50, we're actually on the lookout. We're trying to work out and we're trying to see how God will fulfill those massive promises to this one man, Abraham. And remember, these promises were, were universal. They were to be blessings to the whole world, not just that family. And so we were on the lookout. And as you read Genesis 12 to 50, it seems almost impossible. Abraham and his descendants, they were uh, a troubled, uh, messed up family. So when you quickly go through the story, you see Abraham's wife, Sarah, she was barren. And so no heir. But then Abraham, he, he wasn't a, a very honest guy. He lied about Sarah twice, gave his wife away to someone else. Sarah, she got impatient, gave her maidservant to Abraham to be um, to produce an heir, but that was no good. That was not God's plan. But then by a hundred years old, Abraham finally had his twins, Esau. And, I mean, he had no, sorry, he had Isaac first, and then Isaac. When he was old, he had his twins, Jacob and Esau. The promises belonged to Esau, but Jacob, the younger one, he was deceptive, deceived his father for his brother's blessing, and then. The story of Jacob, he had 12 of his own sons. He was a bad father, he had a favourite child, gave him that technicolour dream coat. 
And so what that led to was the twelve, I mean, the ten brothers being jealous of that brother, wanting to kill that brother, but instead they sold him off as a, as a slave to Egypt. And so well, we're getting a picture of this family that's a bit messed up. How is it possible that God could bring out those massive promises to Abraham through this family? And so that's how the story goes. And so now we're ending up in Egypt. Joseph became the prime minister and eventually brought his family all to Egypt. But you see, despite the mess of this family, we actually see from Genesis 12 to 50, God renews this promise from generation to generation. And so we now come to Exodus. Now, it'll be good if you open up Exodus. We'll have a look at a few of these verses. What is the state of the people of God at this time? So turn up to Exodus chapter 1. And what we're seeing in Exodus is the beginning of the fulfilment of God's promises to Abraham. And so we're seeing here that this family is no longer just the one family, they have actually grown to become a nation. So have a look at Exodus chapter 1 verse 7. They were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land of Egypt was filled with them. So this family has now become a nation. But because they were so numerous, they were enslaved by the Egyptians. They were oppressed by the Egyptians. Have a look at now at chapter 2, verse 23. Look at what happened. So 2.23, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and they cried out and their cry of help because of their slavery went up to God. So the people grown into a nation, but yet they were enslaved. And so they groaned to God. What did God do? Next verse, 24. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. Now when we read here that God remembered his covenant, that God remembered his promise, we're thinking, what type of God is this? Is he a forgetful God? But you see, in the Bible when God remembers, it doesn't mean that God has forgotten Rather, it means that God is about to act on his promises. And so, keep your eyes open, look out and watch to see what God will do. And so, a quick summary, Exodus chapter 2 to 18 is really the story of Moses. There you see Moses encountering God at the burning bush. God telling Moses, go and save his people, deliver them out of Egypt, which he does. And then God acts powerfully. He sends these ten plagues over Egypt the, um, the frogs, the turning the Nile into blood, the gnats, the flies, killing the livestock, the hail, the locals, darkness, and finally the death of the firstborn. God sends these powerful plagues. They were allowed to leave Egypt, but on their way out, they were pursued by the Egyptians. And God did this wonderful act to display his power, and that was splitting up the sea so that his people might travel through safely and the Egyptians were destroyed. Quick summary of the Exodus story, of the Moses story. And what we're seeing here is God powerfully acting to save his people. God acts powerfully to save his people so that they would escape slavery and oppression. And this deliverance, Exodus, becomes the high point. It was the great display of God's power. It was God's divine rescue of his people. It becomes the high point in Israel's history. And so after this point in Exodus, uh, the prophets and, and the priests and the Psalms, they write about this being the great 
act of God in saving them. But then what were they saved for? Well, now we come to our reading tonight, Exodus 19. So turn to Exodus 19. What were they saved for? We'll read verses 1 and 2. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. And so the context here is that three months after leaving Egypt, they're now in the region of Sinai and they're around camping around this mountain. And what God does next is extremely important. He speaks. He speaks to Moses so that he could tell the people of Israel. And God says two things. God reminds them that he is the rescuer. He is the saviour. He is the one who saved them. Secondly, he tells them what he rescued them for. What was the reason for rescuing them? And so we see this in, the, in verses 4 to 6. Have a look. God says to Moses, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you'll be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You see, those are profound words because what God does there in those few verses is he expands on those promises he made to Abraham. Remember those promises in Genesis 12 last week? God promised that Abraham will become a great nation. Well, now God actually expands on that. He makes it clearer. Not only will they become a great nation, more than that, out of all the nations of the world, this nation, the nation of Israel, will be God's own treasured possession. They will have a special place in God's purpose. This one nation, out of the hundreds of nations around the world, this one nation will be God's treasure. They will belong to God in a special way. Now that is special. God is choosing out of all the nations, you'll be mine. You are my treasure. It's a bit like in my household, I'm the father, I'm the husband, so in a sense, I own everything in my household. Everything is mine. But out of the Hundreds of shoes that we have, 500 belongs to Yvonne, <laughs> only two of them are my treasured possession because only two of them fit me. They are mine. Only two of them fit my type of look. <laughs> Everything belongs to me, but only two of them are my treasured possession. The hundreds that Yvonne wears, well, in a sense, they're mine as well because I'm the husband, you see. But you will never see me wearing Yvonne's shoe. Only my one. So my two are my treasured possessions. So in a sense, God is saying, out of all the nations of the world, God owns everyone. He made everyone. But this one nation will be his treasure. God is expanding on the promises he has made to Abraham. But if you look at this verse, God says more. Not only will they be this great nation, they will be for God a kingdom of priests. Now, what does that mean? To call this nation, you'll be a kingdom of priests. Well, we have to understand the role of priests. Priests are like your middleman. They're the mediator. A priest stands between God and man. That is humanity. A priest stands between God and the people. And so for this kingdom to be a kingdom of priests, 
That is to say, this kingdom is to represent God before the world. And they, in a sense, represent the world before God. And so God is saying, you, my treasure possession, you are a kingdom of priests. That is, you are to be my light in this world. You are to point to the world or to me. Show the world who I am, how great I am, my glory, my holiness. And how are they to do that? Well, in the next verse, God says they are to do that by being a holy nation. That is, this one nation out of the hundreds around the world, this one nation is to be set apart for God. That is, they are to live lives that are distinct and different for God. That is, they are to be holy and righteous and like God so that when the world looks and observes this one nation, they are to see what God is like. They are to see the character of God when they observe and see how this nation relates with each other, relates to their God. They are to see how great their God is. And that is why straight after this, this, this chapter, in fact, Exodus 20, what do we see? We see the commandments of God. God commands them, this is how you are to live as my holy people. You are, obey, are to obey these commandments. This is to reflect my character to this world. And so, in this great deliverance, the Exodus story, the Moses story, the saving act of God, we're actually starting to see how God will fulfil his promises to his people. The one man, Abraham, has now become a great nation, but more than that, they've become the treasured possession of God, a nation set apart from all the world for God. Now, in this story, we must remember one thing, and that is the order of events. You see, this nation was saved by God. They were saved from Egypt, out of Egypt, through the sea. They were saved first before they were given the commandments. This is always the order of events. Save first before you learn to live God's way. Save first before you know the commandments of what to obey. You see, salvation always proceeds obedience. Salvation always proceeds obedience. And that's the way it is for us Christians today as well. We become Christians first. We are saved first before we learn to live like Christians. And so this nation, Israel, they enjoyed this great privilege. And they enjoyed this great privilege of being God's treasured possession, not because they were any better than any other nation. It's worth remembering. They were chosen not because they were great. They were chosen not because they were good and holy. Have a look at Deuteronomy chapter 7 with me. Turn to a few books to Deuteronomy, the fifth book, chapter 7, and verse 7 and 8. Okay, chapter 7, verse 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than any other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You see, this nation became God's treasured possession, not because they were any better than any other nation, not because they were any holier or righteous than any other nation, 
Rather, this nation was chosen because of God's promise that he made to Abraham. In fact, if you look at the story of these people, once they passed the sea, once God saved them from Egypt, they started to grumble and complain. They they go to God, where is my water? What do we have to drink out here in the desert? What do we have to eat out here in the desert? We'd rather go back to Egypt as slaves than to die out here in the desert. That was their faithlessness of these people. And so there was nothing good in, in them really at all for God to do such a thing, but God was faithful to his promise. God chose them because of his promise to Abraham. But you see, this becomes the pattern for the rest of the Bible. Everyone who is saved in the Bible are not saved because of their own merit. They're all saved because of God's gracious promises he made right from the beginning. God's grace to them. And so, this is the story. From one man to one great nation but now a nation that belongs to God as his treasured possession. So that's where we've come from and that's where we are now. And so what we're seeing now is the connection between the promises of God and how God brings them about. He brings it about through his saving act. act, God's work of salvation brings about his promises. And so what we're getting here is a glimpse of God renewing his kingdom. The people that will be God's are his treasured possession. We're getting a glimpse of what the kingdom of God will look like. And so this is week four. Now we're going to go back again to week one and we're going to trace our way to where we are today. So the development of the kingdom of God. Remember when we talk about the kingdom of God, this is the theme we'll see over the ten weeks. We're talking about God's people in God's place living under God's rule. God's people in God's place living under God's rule. So that's what we mean. And when we look at this story, we're meant to see not many stories or confusing stories. We're actually meant to see one story where God is the ultimate author and the subject is only one, and that is God's supreme plan of salvation through his son Jesus Christ. This is the one story of the Bible. And so today we're already getting a glimpse of that, God fulfilling his promises in this great act of salvation. And so, from perfect kingdom at the beginning, remember that, creation, to the fall, to the pledge with Abraham. This was last week, the promise. And now what we're seeing today is a partial kingdom. We're starting to see it being fulfilled. So we see the exodus, And we also see God giving his rules, his laws, by which his people are to live by. At the moment, it's a partial kingdom because we're not seeing the land yet. That's still in the future from where we are. So what we're seeing here today is, in a sense, a partial kingdom. And so let's recap again. So on your outlines, the kingdom of God, God's people in God's place under God's rule. At the beginning, the the pattern of the kingdom God's people there, who, who were they? Right at the beginning. Adam and Eve. Okay, God's place, where was that? Garden of Eden, the garden. What about God's rule? How did God rule? He spoke and there was a special relationship he had with his people. Okay, the perish kingdom. Who were God's people there? There was no one. The, the place of God, where was that? Nowhere, they were banished, remember that? What about God's rule? 
It was in judgment. Cursed, they were cursed, the world was cursed and death reigned. Okay, what about the promise kingdom? This was last week. Oh, God's people there? Okay, I've given that away. All right. So, God's people, Abraham's descendants, God's place. Where is that? Well, it was in the promise. There will be some land and it was the land of Canaan. What about God's rule? Well, it was blessings, wasn't it? Blessings to Israel and the nations. That was the promise of God. Okay, and today we see the partial kingdom, which we'll complete next time in, in the next of this series. The partial kingdom, God's people. Who are they now? Well, it's the Israelites. They are God's treasured possessions. We're getting a better view that, that, that the people of God are not just people. They belong to God as his treasured possession. God's place. Well, it's still in Canaan, but that's still in the future. We are not there yet. They've left Egypt. They're going to make their way to Canaan, but they are not there yet. God's rule. Well, God actually gave them rules. Exodus chapter 20, the rules, the commandments to live by so that they might be a kingdom of priests, remember? Okay, so that's where we are at the moment. Actually, the pictures don't align there, but anyway. Now, of course, the story doesn't finish there. We are only four weeks in out of these ten weeks. The story doesn't finish there. The Exodus was certainly in the Old Testament for all Israelites, for all Jews. It was the defining event. The Exodus was the defining event for them. God acted to save them. God's work of salvation for them as a nation. But you said that you see that defining event was only, in one sense, pointing forward to something that will be far bigger and far greater. You see, it will be in this greater exodus, this greater act of salvation, where the promises God made to Abraham will be ultimately fulfilled. Because what we'll find out is that in the Old Testament, it will not be fulfilled. The promises of God will not be fulfilled in the Old Testament. It's only in this next great act of salvation where all the promises will be ultimately fulfilled. See, in the Exodus, God acted to save one nation. But this is hinting forward to something bigger, where God will act to save the world. In the Exodus, God acted to save his people from slavery, from oppression, but one day God will act to save his people, not just from slavery in this world, he'll act to save his people from slavery to sin, to corruption, to decay, to death, where the curse of all the four will be reversed. In the Exodus, God acted for sending plagues, powerful miracles, but one day God will act to save by sending his very own son, Jesus Christ. You see, the Exodus was the great defining event of the Old Testament for all Jews, but it's pointing forward to some greater act of salvation for the world. You see, the great deliverance, as great as it was, is pointing forward to really that greater act, and that is the cross of Christ. It's pointing forward to God's greater deliverance, God's greater salvation, not just for one nation, but for the world, and that is looking forward to the cross of Christ, the life, the death, the resurrection of God's very own Son, Jesus Christ. And it is at the cross 
that defines, in a sense, all that, is God, all that God is on about. The Exodus was what it was, important as it is for the people of Israel. But the cross is important for the whole world. So that's where this story is leading to. But then it makes you wonder. It makes you wonder, why did God bother? I mean, this is over thousands of years. All this story from Abraham to, uh, to Moses was about four or 500 years to us now, a couple of thousand years later. Why did God bother? Why did God go through all these thousands of years just to bring about his purpose? Why did God persist, not only with that messed up family of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, why did God persist with that nation he saved from Egypt? They were whingers and grumblers. As soon as God saved them and showed them the, his power, they whinged. Just like Australians, we were whingers. They were whingers. Why did God persist with them? In fact, if you ask that question today, why would God persist with humanity today? Why would God persist when he watches and observes this world? I mean, God doesn't need to see uh, the TV or listen to the radio. He sees all things. Why would God persist with humanity today? And why did God in the end send his son Jesus Christ to die the terrible, horrific death that he did? Why? 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 Well, you see, the answer is, just as it was for the nation back then, the answer is, he did all that for you. For you, for me, that we might be the treasured possession of God. You see, here comes the point of human history. Here comes the point of human history. God has done all that. In the Exodus, which looks forward to the cross of Christ, God did all that for you, that we might become the treasured possession of God. You see, right from the beginning, God was fulfilling his promise. Remember Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God promised that one day there will be a serpent crusher that will come who will defeat Satan and death and sin and the curse. That is his son Jesus. God's promise to Abraham that the nations will be blessed for some descendant. Well, we see that that will be Jesus and that is Jesus. It's only when we arrive in the, arrive in the New Testament and see the cross of Christ that all of God's purposes become clear. And you see, when we come to the New Testament, it's not just Israel who belong to God as his treasured possession. It is you, people today, you and me. And so when we look at a passage like this in 1 Peter, Peter talking to all those who trust in God's own son, Jesus Christ, as Lord and Saviour, Peter says this to them, but you are a chosen people. I mean, where did we hear that? Now, he's no longer talking about national Israel. He's talking about all of those, the nations who turn to Jesus. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Now, where did we hear that? A people belong to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness, not simply out of Egypt as slaves, but out of darkness, out of death, out of corruption, out of evil. He called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. He did not just call you into Canaan. He called you into his wonderful light. That is eternal life. That is heaven. So what's the point of human history? Where is the focus? Well, it focuses in on where God has acted to save. God has acted to save 
ultimately in his son Jesus Christ to save a people for himself that they may declare the praises of him who has saved us. You see, God has acted in history to save you. Isn't that profound? That God would do such a thing? This is the God of the universe we're talking about. He can raise up a people from that piano, from these pews. He can raise another bunch of people for himself. But he did all that for you, for me, for us. And so what does this mean for us? Well, you see, if you understand how God has acted in history, you know, 2,000 years ago for us today, if you actually understand that, it should radically change how we think about ourselves. It should radically change how we think about this world. And it should also radically change how we think about God. And so how should it change how we think about ourselves? But this is, this is an example of how this has affected me. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm sure many of you grew up with so many pressures from family, from society, and I grew up with immense pressure to achieve. That was my thing. To achieve, not just to do my best. I grew up with the pressure to be the best, to be the top of the class, to be the top of the year level, to be ducks, to get the first class honours. I actually did all that. Did all that, that was huge pressure, but it was no good. Because when that is the pressure, you never achieve enough. You never get there, it's always striving, 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 you never get that. But you see, when I come to understand this, when I came to understand this, nothing in life matters like this. You see, it doesn't matter if I achieve or not. It doesn't matter what I look like, it doesn't matter whether I have the six pack or the one pack. It actually doesn't matter what people think of me. It doesn't even matter what I think of myself, you see, because God has acted in history to save a people for himself, to make me his treasured possession. That is ridiculous that I would belong to God as his treasure. Well, that is what God has done for you too. He's acted in history to save you, to be his treasured possession, to be his treasure, to be the shoe that fits him. No, more than that to be his treasure. This is how it's meant to radically change how we are to think of ourselves. If we belong to God, nothing in life matters as much as that. doesn't matter what happens to us. doesn't matter what we get to achieve or get to do or how much we have. We belong to God as his treasure possession. Secondly, how should this change in how we see this world? Of course, firstly, if you don't already belong to God as his treasured possession, you want to get that right first. Belong to God. Trust in his son, Jesus Christ. Belong to God first. Nothing else will matter like that. But if that's already you, if you already belong to God, then isn't this our desire also for the world? Shouldn't this also be our desire for our family and our friends and all our loved ones and, and all that is in this world? that they too might be the treasured possession of God. You see, we human beings, we have to remember that God created us for him. God made us for him. All people belong to God. We were made for him. And so it's actually a distortion. It's actually delusional to actually think that my life is mine, 
that I live for myself. I do what I want. I do as I please. My life is mine. I was made for me. In fact, that, that is delusional. That is a distortion. But unless our world, unless our family, our friends, our loved ones come to understand that they were made for God and that God has acted to save them, that they might be his treasured possession, they will never understand life to the full. They will never get to live life as life is meant to be lived under God, with God as his treasured possession. You see, next week we've advertised there is this evangelistic night where where we'll proclaim the gospel of Christ so that people might respond to who Jesus is. Now, what might stop us from inviting friends and family and praying for people to come along? What might stop us? I suspect the number one thing that might stop us is fear. Fear, what will that person think of me if I ask that person to church? They might think poorly of me, but man, just think about that. Come on, my God, your God has acted in history to save that person, to, to have that person as God's own treasured possession. And I'm fearful, I'm frightened what they might think of me. That is stupid. That is silliness. What better thing do we have for people of this world that they might know God? And how should we see God? Well, we see God in all his glory. We see God in all his glory. He has acted in the Exodus to save the nation of Israel for him, but he has acted in a greater way in his very own son, Jesus Christ, to save this world for him. This is the point of human history. The cross of Christ, which was for us. And so what can we do but declare the praises of him who brought us out of darkness into his glorious light? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you that in all your goodness, in all your grace and in all your mercy, and through your dear Son, Jesus Christ, that you've made us your chosen people, a royal priesthood, a people belong to you, your very own treasured possession. And so help us in all of our lives, every day, every living second, to declare your praises, you who called us out of darkness into your wonderful light. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. Amen.